The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. A century ago, a group of pioneers joined forces to create what has become one of Britain's most famous institutions, the BBC. To mark the centenary, this new podcast series with the media historian David Hendy will be chronicling the ways in which the BBC has shaped the nation over the last 10 decades, charting its highs and lows, successes and controversies. This first instalment explores the BBC's foundation in 1922 and the ways in which its first decade was marked by idealism and innovation. Putting the questions to David was BBC History Magazine's Deputy Editor, Matt Elton. So David, in this series, we're going to be marking the BBC centenary by exploring its history sort of decade by decade um, from its foundation to the present day, covering some of the highs and the lows and the controversies along the way. Um, Obviously, in this first instalment, we're heading back to the 1920s. Is there a key moment that you can describe in the BBC's founding. That's actually really difficult, actually, because there are there are so many key moments. You could choose, I suppose, the 18th of October 1922, which is the actual date that the British Broadcasting Company, as it then was, not yet a corporation, when the company was formally created. And in a sense, that's a sort of a, a business moment. That's when it, it becomes... Uh, an entity. You could, in terms of its relationship with the wider country, though, I suppose choose almost a month later, the 14th of November 1922, which is actually when it first broadcasts as the BBC. And it goes on air at at six o'clock that evening with a very short news bulletin and a weather forecast. It's actually read twice, once at normal speed and once more slowly in case people at home wanted to take notes. Uh, This was an interesting, very early period in broadcasting. So, So in many ways, that's the moment when it becomes publicly known in a way, although there's very little mention of it. I mean, it gets briefly mentioned by the Times newspaper on an inside page. This wasn't a, a world-shattering moment. Very few people would have noticed at the time. You could jump forward a few more months and say, well, the BBC really gets going when it moves into its first proper home, Savoy Hill, in April 1923. Because when it's first broadcasting in 1922, it's really just sort of camped in in the buildings that belong to other companies. It's sort of a very ad hoc existence. But then, just to make it even more complicated, you could say that these moments in 1922 are really not quite the beginning, they're really the midpoint in a much longer process. So wireless itself as a technology has been around since the 1890s. So you could say, well, 1894 is is an important moment because that's when uh, Oliver Lodge demonstrates wireless signals 
publicly for the first time. So you've got several years of wireless existing as a technology before you have something called broadcasting. And when the BBC goes on air on the 14th of November 1922, that kind of seminal moment, I suppose, it's going on air as a, as a radio station called 2LO in London. And actually 2LO has been broadcasting for a few months, sort of to a kind of a very small public. So yes, there is a kind of founding moment in 1922, but in many ways it's not a sort of single date so much as a whole year of activities where this technology, which has been around for years, suddenly becomes something else. It ceases to be a private means of communication and it becomes something which is uh, part of a national project. You talked there a lot about the technological currents that led to this moment. Were there sort of wider social and I suppose historical currents that also led the BBC to be founded in the form it took? Yes, very much so, because... I mean, as I mentioned, wireless has been around for a while. So why is it in the 1920s that you have the BBC? And I would say that one of the things that we really need to get our head round is the impact of the First World War. The generation who found the BBC are a generation of men, mostly, who have come out of the war. And they've come out of the war with a mixture of of feelings and emotions. There's no singular standard response to war, but there is something that they have in common, which is anxieties and ambitions for civilization. War seemed to be a kind of an abandonment of hope of progress. It seemed to show that civilization was perhaps just skin deep, that barbarism is just a hair's breadth away. And there's an old Victorian idea that was propagated by Matthew Arnold in his famous uh, publication, Culture and Anarchy, where he presents culture as the means of protecting civilization. Uh, and, And it's not just culture for the few, and this is the really important thing with Matthew Arnold, is that he's saying that it's no good just some people becoming cultivated. Their job is to bring everyone along with them, that that society as a whole needs to embrace culture, and culture is what is going to ensure that we maintain, if you like, our humanity, our civilization. So that Victorian idea seems particularly pertinent again in in the aftermath of a barbaric world war. So you've got that. You've also got, coming out of the war, a very dramatic expansion in the electorate. So, you know, after 1918, the number of people who have the vote goes up from about 8 million to about 21 million. That's a huge increase in one go. And given the anxiety about civilization, there is among the intellectual class a, a, a concern about, well, are, are people going to think rationally? Are they going to be sufficiently informed to vote sensibly? Um, is the public mind a, a volatile thing or can it be a sensible, rational thing? So there's a concern about 
the quality and range of information and public debate that is also available. And wireless seems to be the technical means of of solving some of these problems, if only because it, it reaches into every home. Here is something that, unlike newspapers, which are well, they, they're, they're only read by some people, they're divided by class, they're divided by education, and so on. And of course, the newspapers had been um, slightly hysterical at various points during the war in terms of their coverage of, of, of the war. So wireless seems to be the tool that will solve some of these cultural uh, and intellectual challenges. So this was a way of harnessing a technological development in pursuit of a cultural sort of mission, if you like. Yes, and so the, the technology is a means to an end. And and actually what's very, very striking is that, I mean, apart from the sort of hardcore engineering folk who were involved in the early BBC, very few of those who set up the British Broadcasting Company were passionately interested in wireless as such. They were interested in the future of society. They were interested in rebuilding civilization, as they saw it, in ensuring peace between nations. These were the kinds of things that they were talking about, much more than the technology of wireless. So yes, this was, this was a means to an end. Who were some of the key people who had this, this mission, if you like? Well, of course, the, the, the big name that we, we can't avoid is, is John Reith. And I, w- I want to come back to him, but before we dive into John Reith, who is obviously a really, really important figure, it's worth remembering that he wasn't alone. And in fact, he wasn't actually the first person at the BBC. <laughs> he was appointed slightly later than other people. And I want to to mention two or three other people. First of all, someone who tends to be a bit of a forgotten figure, Arthur Burroughs, um, who had worked for the Marconi Company, but was more interesting than that might imply, because we might think of him as, if you like, the, the, the company person, the business, the businessman. And he did have a business sense, but he also had a real egalitarian spirit. He had not been, had not gone to university. He'd he'd grown up in Oxford, and his father was a porter, and his mother was a, a school teacher. And he worked in adult education. He'd worked in newspapers. He'd worked for Marconi during the war, and during the war, he'd become involved in monitoring German propaganda, German wireless propaganda, and that had started to ferment in his mind the idea that that radio, if it was so powerful it could be used for for false propaganda, as he saw it. Why not use it for beneficial propaganda? Uh, And there there was a lovely phrase that was published in one of the wartime wireless magazines, the idea that what Britain needed to do in response to German propaganda was to flood the ether with truth ions. So it's this idea that, you know, if there was going to be a battle in the airwaves, as it were, then why not seize the initiative on behalf of truth. And this was something that really exercised Arthur Burroughs. He came to the BBC as someone with that desire to see broadcasting as a peace-building, understanding-sharing tool. Alongside Arthur Burroughs, you also have Cecil Lewis. He's just 24, very young. Uh, He was a distinguished pilot during the war. And 
the war had had quite a profound effect on him in terms of, again, his anxiety about barbarism, uh, the loss of culture. And he wanted broadcasting to be a means of spreading culture, of giving access to all to what he saw as the great things in life, music, poetry, ideas, and so on. And he is Arthur Burroughs' deputy. So Arthur Burroughs and Cecil Lewis are really the two key programme makers at the early BBC. You've then got Peter Eckersley, who's worth remembering. He was the first chief engineer, and he, if you like, was the wireless the wireless enthusiast um, who knew the technology uh, and was hugely enthusiastic about kind of developing it in all sorts of ways. Now, Reith, of course, joins. He's the general manager. He's the key figure. And he has a sort of profound moral vision. I mean, he's been brought up in a in a Presbyterian household in Glasgow, and he's inherited that sense of kind of Christian paternalism, the idea of of doing good works on behalf of God. He's totally convinced that he's the right person <laughs> to enact this moral vision. And he sees uh, broadcasting as a means of doing good in the world in this sort of profoundly religious sense. So he has that sort of absolute moral vision that he brings to it. So those, now those Four men, you notice they're all men. Um, and uh, at this stage, there are very few women at the BBC, but they do start to appear uh, in the first few years. So if I wanted to add one important woman to the to the mix, I would say that Hilda Matheson is a, is a profoundly important person. She joins in 1926 as director of talks. And that's an important and influential post at the BBC. Hilda Matheson, she'd worked for British intelligence during the war. She'd worked for uh, Nancy Astor, the MP. She was politically well-connected. She was culturally connected with Bloomsbury. And she had the social connections and the intellectual interest that allowed the BBC to access, as it were, the great and good and to persuade them to come onto the airwaves uh, and and dabble with this new, strange and, and slightly obscure business called the BBC. Just staying with these people, um, I'm interested in the fact that Reith has obscured or eclipsed some of the contributions that the other people that you've mentioned uh, made. Do you think there's a reason for that? Uh, why is the history of being told with so much focus on his contribution, I suppose? I think Reith is, is just is a magnetic figure. He's such a complex figure. Uh, so he's got a kind of uh, an aura about him. And, and people in the early BBC spoke about this. He was he was slightly scared. I mean, he was very tall and uh, he had a scar down the left-hand side of his face from a war wound. Um, and he had these sort of furrowed eyebrows and looked very serious and was quite austere and quite terrifying in certain ways. So he had an, uh, he had an impact on staff at the BBC. It didn't take long for the popular press to 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 note his character and to refer to him as, for instance, the Napoleon of Savoy Hill, which was obviously inaccurate in terms of his height, but but conjured up the idea that he was kind of quite authoritarian. Now, 
The real wreath, I think, is much more complicated and more nuanced. Yes, he had a very clear sense of what he believed broadcasting was for, but he was also quite kind and quite supportive to other members of staff. He was also quite loyal. There were sort of strange friendships and and sort of bonds of respect that worked at the early BBC, in part because a lot of the staff were ex-military men and, and they had a sort of that common experience, which I think they sort of respected each other for. And and Reith was also psychologically kind of interesting and complex. I mean, he was someone who in 1922 uh, is still feeling the effects of his war wound. He's still feeling the effects of neurasthenia. He's got tremors. He's 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 got periods of depression and so on. So, so I think in in some sense he he eclipses the other people partly because he's such a sort of physically and and ethically dominant figure but also because he's he's fascinating <laughs> and it it's reith who does the sort of frontline work of negotiating with with the politicians and the government and and, and so on but you know Speak to the people who worked at Savoy Hill, read their memoirs, their accounts of their time there. And by and large, they're very, very supportive of Reith. They're very clear that he was a dominant figure, but they supported him and they felt that he supported them by and large. And they also, almost without exception, say that Reith was so busy with the high politics of the BBC that on a day-to-day basis, he left them to get on with the business of programme making. I'm really interested in this idea of this sort of, this new BBC. To what extent was it doing something sort of genuinely new? It was a cultural outlier. And to, or to what extent did it reflect what was happening in London, or I suppose Britain more widely at the time? There's one description of the BBC by one of its sort of new members that it, he describes it as a port in a stormy sea, which seems to imply that it's a sort of a haven, really, that it's sort of separate from the world. But there's another description that one of the early BBC members gives it, which he said that the BBC was one third boarding school, one third Chelsea party and one third crusade. And I think that that actually is a really accurate capturing of the way in which the BBC is to some extent a kind of cut-off institution, but it's also connected with the world of fun, a party. It's also connected with a crusade, a wider sense of, 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 of mission. So what you've got is a BBC that is both serious and fun-loving. Uh, it coexists. I mean, one of the things that we need to kind of understand about the BBC, even in those early Savoy Hill days, even under Reith, is that it's not just about a serious mission to explain or a mission to improve. It is about escapism and fun and pleasure. I mean, Reith's idea was that not that entertainment was bad, but that it would be a waste of opportunity for it only to be about entertainment. So the BBC exists in this world which is in itself quite ambivalent. You've got intellectuals who are writing about the morbid age, about the decline of civilization, and so on. But you've also got 
you know, the bright young things. You've got uh, cinema becoming hugely popular. You've got dancing becoming a hugely popular entertainment form. You've got cultural debates about modernism and about the state of the world, about international politics and so on. The job of people at the BBC right from the start was to sort of sniff the air to kind of work out what are the people who are saying interesting things, what are the latest books, what are the latest ideas, what are the latest plays, uh, the latest forms of music, and to sort of metabolise that and to work out how it could be captured and presented on air and broadcast back to the population. So it was intrinsic to the cultural project of the BBC that it couldn't possibly be cut off from the world around it. It was all about trying to sense what was happening in the world, the currents of the world, uh, and to try and find some way of capturing and representing that. Now, of course, there are all sorts of cultural debates about how much of that world was worth presenting. You know, Reith had had his blind spots. He didn't really like any modernist nonsense in literature. He didn't really like jazz very much. Um, And so there were certain areas that the BBC were timid about covering and including. But by and large, it, it wasn't a sort of a sealed monastic community. And it's it's really interesting that right from the start, it was its aim to reflect society at large. Uh, like from the very early days, that was one of its ambitions. It was, it was. Uh, but different people give slightly different accounts. So for instance, Cecil Lewis, for instance, who is, you know, deputy director of programmes in an important position, says, I, he says, I, I was fed up of news. I wasn't really interested in what was going on in Abyssinia. I just wanted kind of fun and escape and culture and music and plays. So it's a complicated chemistry that's going on here. You've got people, especially in the talks department, um, who will say, no, it is about the latest ideas and and capturing that. And you've got other people who are saying, oh, it's just really about getting away from the grind of news. We don't want very much of that. And I think that's really important as well, because it, it reminds us that it's not a monolithic organisation here. There are lots of different people pulling it in different directions. And the BBC becomes the sum of all of those pulls in different directions. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The studio was recognised to be a space that would that would be unsettling. It was a new thing. So let's make it familiar. So in many ways, it was even more bizarre because you would walk into a room and walk into a studio and there would be some sofas and some table lamps and some potted plants um, and carpets and maybe a piano in the corner and some clocks on the wall. And it was a sort of pseudo attempt to create a sort of relaxed, sort of normal sitting room environment. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra.
given that there is this sort of tension and this diversity, uh, are there particular programmes or particular things that were broadcast that reflect some of these uh, currents? The pattern of programmes takes a while to establish itself. So in the very early days, it's all very, very ad hoc. And and Reith comes out with a famous phrase when he writes his 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 book about broadcasting. He says, there were no sealed orders. Um, so so there's a lot of trial and error here. And and no at the very early days, no real sense of there being a fixed schedule of identifiable recurrent programmes. You have um, scenes from plays, you have relays from live operas, if the BBC can organise it, you have um, short talks about, I don't know, crossing the channel or the feeding habits of bats. You have companionable uh, chats about recipes and, and, and so on. And you've got a BBC that's sort of feeling its way towards bigger, more established kinds of programmes. And I suppose the kind of programmes that would capture what the BBC was trying to do once it was up and running, one example of that would be a series called Music and the Ordinary Listener, which was broadcast in 1926. And it was presented by Walford Davis. And he was basically introducing highlights from the classical canon. And he was doing it with a kind of masterful sense of knowledge, but an easygoing manner. And it's a really good example, if you like, of of the BBC not just presenting classical music as, here, this is good for you, shut up and listen. It's an attempt to try and kind of offer some support and guidance um, so that it, it lives up to Reith's idea that, yes, it is about about bringing the best to everyone, but you can't be too far ahead of public taste. The job is to be slightly ahead of public taste, but not so far ahead that you leave people behind. So Music and the Ordinary Listener was a kind of, I think in many ways, an emblematic early programme in terms of the BBC's mission to try and change cultural tastes, but to do it in a way that felt companionable rather than intimidating. You've also got regular dance music. It's really important, I think, to remember that. We we probably have a vision that the early BBC was was stuffing chamber music down people's throats. And indeed there was chamber music on the schedule. And it wasn't very very popular. But there was also lots and lots of dance music. Regular relays from the Savoy Hotel and other dance bands and so on. Um, and then I think a really important early programme was a short play called Comedy of Danger, which went out in 1924. And it was a play by Richard Hughes. Now, until this point, I think that there was so much trial and error involved in trying to work out what was a radio programme. And and there were no real models to, to draw from. You had the theatre, which was about live performance and projecting on stage to a live audience face to face. Well, radio wasn't like that because the audience was invisible and it was distant and it wasn't there in the studio. You had the public lecture, which could be a model for talks programmes, but the lecture was very sort of um, declamatory uh, and, again, usually face-to-face. 
you had cinema, but that wasn't live. It was it was canned, and radio was live. Um, you had newspapers, but that was a, a medium that involved reading rather than speaking. So, so the BBC, the broadcasters were having to work out from these existing media, if you like, what was new and distinctive about radio. Now, in 1924, you have Richard Hughes, who comes up with Comedy of Danger, which is in many ways the first play for radio, rather than just putting something that had been on the theatre on air. It was a play that was written for radio. And his brilliant conceit was to set it in a coal mine where there'd been a disaster and the the people involved were plunged into darkness. So they couldn't see each other in exactly the same way that the listener at home could not see the action either. And it was a kind of brilliant exploration of what it would be to actually create something specifically for this new medium radio, which was not just something you couldn't see, but which was also delivered in people's homes uh, in a sort of very intimate domestic setting, which is very different to the theatre or the cinema uh, or, or a lecture theatre. So, so I think that the BBC is sort of feeling its way, its broadcasters are feeling their way to creating what we would call radiogenic material, something that felt as if it was of radio rather than just something which happened to be on the radio. As it felt its way through these these challenges and these new uh, opportunities, were there developments in technology that helped? And how much would we recognise the technology used to make radio a century ago compared to today? I think the technology would have felt and looked quite distinct and quite bizarre, both at the, the studio end and the listener end. And I think, you know, both of them had really important development. So if we start off at the sort of the studio end, if you like, the the production end of it, the studios were not um, bare soundproofed rooms focused on the technology. They were for a start, they were heavily draped. The first, the first studios that, that that were built at Savoy Hill had so many layers of kind of te- textiles and 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 cladding and curtains and so on uh, that they were they were actually sort of dead acoustically because there was so much fear about external external noise. Um, but they were also decorated to to be familiar. The studio was recognised to be a space that would that would be unsettling. It was a new thing, so let's make it familiar. So in many ways, it was even more bizarre because you would walk into a room and walk into a studio, and there would be some sofas and some table lamps and some potted plants um, and carpets and maybe a piano in the corner and some clocks on the wall. And it was a sort of pseudo attempt to create a sort of relaxed sort of normal sitting room environment. And yet, at the centre of this studio was the most bizarre contraption imaginable, which was the microphone. Now, the microphone was this sort of um, huge magnet that was sort of supported in a kind of rubber sling, surrounded by a, a cage, a box to protect it from electrical interference, set up on on wheels. And then, because it looked like an old-fashioned meat safe, it would be covered in a in a piece of cloth to somehow hide it away. And that made it even scarier. So so yes, there was <laughs> you you had a sort of attempt to domesticate the studio combined with bizarre 
contraptions like these early microphones that that would really strike horror in performers. I mean, they 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 were very very anxious, and when you had producers who would put up signs on the wall saying do not cough or rustle your papers or or else you will deafen thousands it made it even more frightening for the performers to think well what do i do with this microphone i mean do i i mean actors who are used to the stage would shout at it and 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 they would probably you know take the BBC off there um, uh, because they were so loud and other people just fainted in front of it because it was so bizarre. So so the technology was there. So it's a microphone, it's a studio, that's familiar, uh, but they they looked very strange. Now, gradually, the BBC is learning to change. So the studios start to lose their heavy drapes. They start to kind of get a brighter sound. The microphones uh, start to look less bizarre and eventually we get the much more familiar BBC microphone that we've probably seen in lots of of images. Now, at the listener end of of the equation, you've also got the very earliest listeners are listening on crystal radio sets, which are very little contraptions that have to be sort of hand-tuned. There's lots of sort of fiddling to get them tuned and you have to really listen on headphones. These these crystal radio sets were therefore very sort of individual experiences, really. They were kind of private affairs. Someone sitting in the corner with their headphones on, listening to something and not sharing it with other people in the room. Now, eventually, you get more valve radio sets being used. And these valve radio sets are stronger. They can... They can pick up signals from further away, and the sound quality is better. And the more valves you have, then the better your radio and and, and so on. But they, they're a bit more expensive, so they take a while. And eventually, with these valve radios, they're designed to fit in with the domestic environment. So they become a bit more like a piece of furniture. So within the space of 10 years, really, you've got what looks like a bizarre little collection of coils and wires and and plugs and so on, changing into something which looks like another piece of furniture, just there in the background, in the domestic setting. And now I think what's really important is that the BBC realises there is a relationship here between what's happening in the studio and the experience of the listeners, because a lot of the listeners in the early days Actually, the reception was pretty, pretty lousy, right? There were lots of, there was lots of electrical interference, which was called atmospherics at the time. And the BBC knew that it had to build more transmitters and it had to strengthen the signal. But it also knew that it had to keep its programmes simple. There were producers who wanted to make very, very elaborate productions, multi-layered, all sorts of complexities. And these things would have sounded pretty awful at the receiving end. They would have been kind of mashed into a kind of indistinguishable stew of sound. You know, there's a there's a process going on with producers having to learn to keep things simple. Speech had to be clear. Uh, it had to be uncluttered. Programmes shouldn't be too ambitious and textured in their style or else they would just not be heard properly at home. So there's a there's a constant loop and feedback between the listener experience and what's going on uh, at the producer end. And the technology at both ends changes as a result of this loop. A theme all the way through this is innovation. Do you think it's overly simplistic to try to compare the innovation of the BBC in this period with some of the the later technological innovations, say the dot-com boom of the 2000s. Is there anything that we can learn by looking at those two 
uh, examples, for instance? I think that actually the the parallels are quite striking. I think it's actually a very legitimate comparison. If you think of the early days of Savoy Hill in the 1920s, they they referred to as as the pioneering days. It was like a startup. You've got a very young a generation involved in the BBC. Cecil Lewis was just 24 when he joined the BBC to become Deputy Director of Programmes. A lot of young people were involved. It was a young organisation. And although you've got John Reith as a sort of dominant figure, because nothing was set, because there were no sealed orders, because this thing called radio uh, was being worked out in an ad hoc way, you've got ideas bubbling up from the factory floor. So that's a kind of interesting parallel here. You've got, you know, if you've got an idea, you can generally get it on air quite quickly in the early 1920s on the BBC. Uh, Because, you know, there is this voracious monster, which is the schedule. What do you fill it with? Anyone with an idea will generally be able to kind of fulfil it uh, because we haven't got kind of set regular programmes occupying whole chunks of the schedule at this stage. You've got a constant struggle to fill it. And that's a great moment for young creative minds. Um, Now, of course, there is that ongoing struggle, which I'm sure dot-com businesses also experience, which is uh, between the free spirits who believe that anything should be possible and anything can be done, and those higher up in the machinery who are thinking about longevity and they're thinking about respectability and they're thinking about something which is not going to get this organisation into trouble. So, so I wouldn't want to say that Savoy Hill was was a, a, a place where it was unbridled creativity and anything went. It was a it was a it was a place where there was this tension between kind of creativity and and a sort of search for respectability. But I think that too is probably exactly what happens as part of the kind of the life cycle of of a, a more recent dot com business. It's obviously sometimes dangerous to look back with hindsight. But finally, are there any clues here in this decade to the corporation the BBC would later become? I think there are a few. I think, for instance, the idea of universal access to the BBC service, I think, is there right from the beginning. So the BBC wanted the best, but it wanted the best for everyone. So its desire was to be a national service. It wasn't about something for those who could afford it or who subscribed to it, but it was about its impact on society as a whole. And that, of course, creates all sorts of debates that are still with us on the BBC. If you are trying to offer the best to everyone... How do you make it accessible? Do you just present it? Uh, do you help guide? How far ahead of public taste can you be before you lose uh, the public? So that that kind of grand mission for universal access and the kind of debates over taste that are involved, I think that's there from the beginning. The other thing that's there you can see in the 1920s is that this is a BBC that is willing to take risks because it believes that supply can shape demand. 
Now, the, the commercial model, if you like, is demand shapes supply, uh, that, you know, what people want uh, is what the market will provide. And Reith's famous notion was, well, people don't necessarily know what they want, and they don't know that they want something if that thing doesn't yet exist. So we are an organisation that is lucky enough to have the public funding and to be insulated from commercial pressures, insulated from political pressures, and therefore we can actually say, well, let's try this out. Let's see if we supply this. And then if we supply it, we might create demand for it. And that was part of the kind of the formula that, that the early BBC had for trying to kind of improve public taste, if you like, which was let's, let's see if we can introduce some unfamiliar things alongside the familiar things. And that, I think, has, is a core BBC value. And and I suppose the last thing that we can see is that even though the very early days were very ad hoc and experimental, this is an organisation that by the end of the 1920s is really starting to have self-belief. It really believes that actually it's it's doing something meaningful. It's become bigger. It's become more established. Millions of people are now listening, not just thousands. It is becoming a national institution. And that too is part of the BBC's DNA, that it's in the business of broadcasting. It's a creative enterprise, if you like, but it is also a national institution and institutions have their own uh, issues and, and, uh, and tensions uh, that they have to deal with. That was David Hendy, whose new book, The BBC, A People's History, is out now, published by Profile. You can read more from David in every issue of BBC History magazine. And don't miss the next instalment of this podcast series, which will be exploring the BBC in the 1930s. That'll be arriving in your podcast feeds in February. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. (laughs) 